to its present form, naming it after one of the hotels she and her husband had visited for a cure in the Alps. The hotel and outbuildings were further extended by her son, who also financed the construction of a pier and the promenade to link the two ends of the town. These modern facilities, together with the increasing popularity of sea bathing, ensured that Kingshaven became a fashionable and prosperous resort at the beginning of the 20th century. In 1936, Beatrice's great-grandson Rex, then proprietor of the palace, suddenly and scandalously emigrated to France, leaving the reputation of the hotel damaged and its management in the hands of his inexperienced younger brother Basil. Shortly afterwards, the palace closed for business, owing to its requisition by the RAF. Thanks to their exemplary patriotism and generosity during the war years, Basil, his wife Liliana, and their two daughters Elizabeth, known as Libby, and Pearl, succeeded in mending the reputation of the palace as a family hotel after its civilian status was restored. After Basil's untimely death in 1952, the hotel's management passed to Libby, her husband Eddie, and their young family. From A Brief History of Kingshaven, copyright Michael Quinn, 2000. Chapter 1 The 2nd of June, 1953 a visitor's usual impression of Kingshaven, inscribed on the back of a scenic views postcard and read by Audrey Potter, the postmistress, as she bagged up the mail, was of a picturesque seaside town with well-tended gardens, a golden beach which, if it appeared more sandy in the hand-tinted photograph than it felt to the naked foot, was left unremarked, a small harbour of colourful fishing boats and wild cliffs where the fossilised skeletons of prehistoric creatures occasionally emerged from the eroding limestone. The town's attractions were virtually indistinguishable from those of several other resorts dotted along the south coast of England. A pier with a small theatre, a promenade with a clock tower, an imposing Victorian hotel, guest houses painted in pale pastel shades with optimistic names like Sunnyside and Bella Vista, and a steep high street which, at the slightest glimmer of sunshine, bloomed with spinners of bright pink rock and bouncing nets of striped beach balls. The 2nd of June, 1953, was not the clear and sunny day that had been prayed for, by those more believing or patriotic than Michael Quinn. The sky was overcast, and the air unwarmed by a visible sun. From the little bedroom window, under the eaves of the Quinn's cottage, the view was of drizzle and mist, the grey of the sea barely distinguishable from the grey of the sky. In the kitchen downstairs, the announcer on the wireless was saying that Despite assurances from forecasters that the date was the most likely in the calendar for picture-perfect conditions, the excited nation had awoken instead to a chilly, rainy gloom. In London, half a million people had spent a damp night camped out along the procession route. Everywhere else, rainy streets emptied, 
as the rest of the population crowded into the living rooms of houses fortunate enough to have an H aerial on the roof. Across the yard at the back of the cottage, Michael's wife Sylvia and their three-year-old daughter emerged from the outside lavatory and were inspecting the wild flowers that grew out of the cracks in the stone wall. As if she had felt his gaze upon her, Sylvia turned to smile at him, her hand on her lower back, and then Iris looked up and shouted gleefully, It's raining! Michael opened the back door and scooped his daughter up in his arms. Beads of drizzle had attached themselves to her springy curls of red hair, making it both wet and dry against his newly shaven skin. Show your father your coronation, Posy, said Sylvia. Red, white and blue, said Iris, opening...